Does God owe you something? Now, most of us give that automatic no. It's a, it's a, it seems like a, the Christian answer is a quick and easy no. I saw a lot of heads shake no right off the bat. That If I was asked that question right off the bat, I would also shake my head no. Are you kidding me? But I think oftentimes we struggle with this idea that God owes me something. It may not, we may not just come out and say this. We may not just come right out and say, you know, I've been a pretty good person. God owes me. But there are often times we have thoughts and behaviors that reveal this idea. How about when you're uncomfortable? How about when you can't afford to pay your bill? When you're hitting financial crisis? How about when you're in the midst of suffering, when someone you love has hurt you? It's easy during those times of suffering to look at God and say, but God, I've been good. God, I read your word. God, I have followed, I've obeyed. And, and it, it kind of plays out in this idea that we've kind of, we think in Christian circles that we've kind of made a deal with God. I heard a theologian once said, it's let's make a deal theology. And that deal is, I will profess faith in Christ. I will say that I submit to the word. I'll even jump through the hoops of the word. And I'll be a good person. And I'll go to church. And I'll sing hymns. And I'll study my Bible every day. And God will make my life good. And we get this idea, and it's, it's a very American cultural idea, that life is really about happiness. God owes me happiness. Because after all, I believe in him. I put my faith in him. And so we make, we creep, we slide very comfortably and very easily into the let's make a deal theology. God, I made a deal with you. Hey, I even shared the gospel with someone. I studied my word. I studied God's word. I'm a pretty good parent, even though I have my bouts of anger. But that's justifiable because my kids are kind of rowdy. So God owes me. And we begin to believe this. And we would never come straight out and say it but we begin to believe it. And in all honesty, God does owe you something. You deserve something. And that is eternal separation from God. That's what God owes you. That's what you deserve. That's what you have earned. And that's what we'll talk about today as we continue our journey, our series, Hopeful, Boy, what a, what a hopeful opening to a, a sermon, right? <laughs> but, but we titled the, the study through Revelation Hopeful because Revelation is a book that should be giving us hope. As Christians, as believers, we can put our faith and trust in Christ and we have hope no matter that through all the suffering, although God doesn't owe, owe us happiness, although God doesn't owe us a good life, we know that through all the suffering and all the turmoil in life, in the end, we know how it ends. In the end, there is hope. Now, there's, there might not be hope in happiness here and now. I was just talking to someone that was, uh, that was uh, emphasizing 
that happiness theology, you know, that God owes us something. And, and how insulting that would be to someone that was living in poverty in, let's say, India. Someone, you know, that might just starve to death. That's something we have a hard time comprehending. But in the end, even the person that is living in persecution, that will be abused their entire life, even the person that will live in absolute poverty, can live in hope. And they can live in hope because we know that in the end, Christ wins. And we can have victory in Christ. So, we're continuing this hopeful study. We're going to read through chapters 15 and 16 today, which I know is a lot. Uh, Brace yourselves. We're going to take a a speed uh, ride through 15 and 16. Usually, we, we, we bite off one chapter. Sometimes we don't even get through one chapter but I am going to push through today. So, open with me, if you will, to to Revelation 15 and 16. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with hearts of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels and the seven plagues clothed in pure white, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath, of, sorry, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood, And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. This is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven 
for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hellstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. All right, let's go ahead and dig in. So this is the, the final part of the second vision. So if you remember, Revelation is broken into four different visions. The first one is letters to seven different churches. And then in chapter 4, he is swept away into his, his second vision. And the beginning of that second vision starts with the throne room of heaven. We're going to see the throne room again today, but the, he starts off in the throne room of heaven, and then we go through the first of two different sets of judgments. The first set of judgments is the seals. If you remember, the seals, he lifts what is restraining man's wickedness so that man can see and fully realize how absolutely, truly wicked we are. Some of us think we're pretty good. I don't think so. There is a restrainer restraining your wickedness. During those seals, we will see the absolute depravity of mankind. And then we hear the voice of, uh, of the martyrs cry out. And then we see God bring his judgment in, in six. He, he begins it. And then in the seventh seal, that's where the trumpets begin. So contained in that seventh seal, this is like a telescoping, if you remember. In the seventh seal, we start to see the trumpets. In the trumpets, God begins to unleash the judgments. And the first four reveal in a, a very supernatural way just how great and awesome God is. And he does it in such a way that no one can ever say, oh, that's just nature. Oh, you know, the, the moon just turned blood red. That's just, you know, if we could just look at it through the smoke, that's how it happened. No, it's going to happen in such a way that it was very obvious that it's supernatural, that it is God doing this. So we see the wickedness of man, what man, that man deserves punishment, and we see the awesomeness of God, and then he brings about, he, he literally unleashes hell on earth, and there are demons that come up to torture mankind. He's doing this all to push 
towards repentance. He's, he is revealing to mankind that they need to repent. So we see our wickedness, we see our awesomeness, and then we get a taste of what eternity without God will be like. And it will be literally hell. It's going to be horrible. And yet, the end result is that they still do not repent. Throughout the, this vision, we, see, we, caught, we got caught up in what's called interludes. The interludes don't move the narrative forward, but give us a deeper explanation of what's happening within the narrative. So we just finished that interlude that went through chapters 12, 13, and 14, and chapter 15 picks back up with the narrative. So we're done with the interlude. We're, we're done with explaining how this end times will unfold uh, in a different from a different angle, we're now back into the narrative that is pushing along this narrative. So, with that is chapter 15 and 16. Chapter 15, verse 1, is kind of a summary of 15 and 16, so it's setting the stage for it all. Chapter 15 will set the stage even more so for 16. 16 will complete the judgments. Then I saw another sign in heaven. So this is bringing us out of the interlude, back into the throne room. So if you remember all the way back months ago in chapter 4, he was brought up into the throne room of heaven and he saw the glory of God. He is back into that throne room now. We see that we're back into the narrative and he's going to push that narrative along. So in heaven, he saw a great and amazing sign, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. The wrath here, and we've talked a little bit about it, but I think it helps us to remind ourselves of what this wrath is. Oftentimes when we think of wrath, we think of kind of like a toddler's tantrum. You've seen a toddler's tantrum, right? We have a toddler right now. This toddler sometimes, there's no logic to a toddler tantrum. Sometimes that tantrum and, and the wrath of a toddler is just coming out. And that, like that our toddler will sometimes scream for something, and you're trying to figure out what she's screaming for. And when you think you've got it figured out, and, she, and you have jumped through every single hoop she has commanded, then she screams because you just jumped through the hoop. It's not a logical wrath. That's not what God's wrath is. And sometimes we think of wrath, and we think of some illogical wrath. And it's not even our wrath. Sometimes we get caught up in wrath, right? And our anger overcomes us, and we become illogical. Have you ever been so angry, you just you couldn't even control yourself, and you just didn't even realize how stupid you looked? I'll confess, I've done it. And I've looked back, and I was like, man, I was such an idiot. Some of my biggest regrets are looking back at, at being consumed, letting anger consume me, and looking back at my wrath thinking, what a Ooh, that's not God's wrath. God's wrath is poured out distinctly upon the disobedience and directed distinctly at the disobedience of mankind. It's important for us to get this right because God created the world and God created the principles that govern the world. God created the moral principles that govern the world. And yet, we as humans, every single one of us, have violated at least some of those principles. I have, may not have killed someone, but I have violated God's governing principles at some point. And because I have done that, 
I have added on to the destruction of God's beautiful creation. At the end of God creating, he says, it is good. God's creation is good. And yet we as humans bring in destruction, and you may not have killed someone, you may not have done something that you deem incredibly horrible, but you have participated in the destruction of God's good kingdom. And because of that, God's wrath is coming. Last week we talked about it a little bit, but I think it behooves us to talk about it again, that God's wrath is because he cares. God's wrath is because he cares. He cares about his creation. He cares about you. And just as you have participated in the destruction, someone else has participated in the destruction specifically against you. And because God loves you so much, he's bringing his wrath against the person that has abused and manipulated you. But it's also against you who have manipulated and abused others. A God that doesn't bring wrath is a God that doesn't care. Some people like to paint this picture of God as just this loving, oh, it's all good kind of a God. That kind of God doesn't care about you. If he cares, then he will bring his wrath. If you picture your family, you're sleeping at night, and in comes a thief. And this thief breaks into your house, and he tortures your family right in front of your face. He tortures them, and he kills them. And you say, meh, I'm going to go turn on the TV. Did you actually care about your family? No. Because you love your family, you will care deeply if a thief comes in and tries to kill them. In fact, my guess is, if a thief comes in and tries to kill your family, and you have the ability, you will use lethal force to stop him. Why? Because you love your family. You care about your family. So that thief will fill your wrath. The same is true for God. God loves you deeply. He loves his creation deeply. And because of that, the creation that has rebelled against him will fill his wrath. God has wrath because he loves. God has wrath because he cares. And it will be directed distinctly against those who are in rebellion and in disobedience against him. So this is the wrath. And they say the the wrath of God is finished. That means with these seven bowls that will be poured out, the wrath of God will be complete. Justice at this point will be complete. It will be fulfilled. We will see a new part of human history. At that moment, God's justice will be fulfilled. It will be complete. There will be, we will enter into a new age of human history. And what I saw, and sorry, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. This takes us back to chapter four in the throne room discussion. There was a sea of glass. We talked about how that represents God's glory, but this time mixed in with that glass is fire. That represents judgment. So in with God's glory is also judgment. So we see God's glory that is also part of the judgment. Part of God's glory is judgment. If God wasn't to judge the earth, there would be no glory. 
once again, it would go back to him not caring. Because God cares about his creation, he will judge it. And also, those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. So there are, there are those who conquered the beast in the throne room. Those are, are people who have been killed during the tribulation. And oftentimes, we don't think of those who, are conquer, who have conquered as those who were killed. Most of the time, when we think of those who conquer, we think of those who have been killing. God flips this upside down. He turns it upside down. So how did they conquer the beast? It is by faith and trust in Christ. The beast's goal was to continue to drive a wedge between God and his creation, between God and humanity. So in order to conquer the beast, it wasn't through physical fitness. It wasn't through the ability to kill the beast. It was by remaining faithful to God to continuing to have faith and to continue to trust in Christ even unto death. That's how the martyrs conquer the beast. I think we need to meditate on that for our own lives as well. But I won't, I won't talk too much about it other than as you drive home today, think about, think about trust and faith in Christ and how that plays out in your life. Now I would say this, during the tribulation, the church will be raptured up. So it is a different dispensation or a different era of humanity. So what we've got going on doesn't look exactly like what the martyrs will have going on. But it is something for us to think about how they conquered the beast. So there's these that have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God. The harps of God signify joy. They're in heaven and they're joyous and they're celebrating what God has done for them. This goes back to being hopeful, right? That although they died on behalf of Christ, although they were tortured here on earth for Christ, they have joy for all of eternity. So often we are quick to trade the joy of eternity for comfort now. For the joy of eternity for some fleeting titillation now. This should encourage us that we can have everlasting joy even if we suffer now. So they have the harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses. The song of Moses is a reference back to Exodus, and after the Exodus, after God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, Moses sang a song of deliverance. So this is a, a song of deliverance, that they have been delivered from the beast, they have been delivered from the suffering that they experienced on earth, they are now in heaven experiencing deliverance. And the song of the Lamb, I think a more literal translation is a song that is about the Lamb. So it's a song of deliverance about how Jesus has delivered them. That's what the song is all about. And then we get into the song. And it breaks down with first with God's works, then we get into God's character, and then we'll see the results of His works and His character followed by the reasons for the results. So, the first line, great and amazing are your deeds, 
O Lord God the Almighty. The deeds are what He has done. So they're declaring that His deeds, His works, are great and amazing. O Lord God the Almighty. Almighty is a reference that He is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. He will accomplish what He wants to accomplish. He will get it done. Just and true are your ways. Just means He is legally and ethically correct. So it's both legally and ethically correct. God is always legally and ethically correct. We don't always understand it. In fact, that's one of the biggest arguments I hear against the God of the Bible. They look back at some passages in the Old Testament, or they might even look at Revelation, and they would claim that God is some kind of megalomaniac, genocidal God. How can you believe in Him? But this is a statement that says, God is always correct. So what I would say to that is, as I read the Old Testament, sometimes I have to step out in faith, and I have to say, I don't quite understand it. Maybe there's something about the narrative I don't understand. Maybe there's something about the culture that's going on that I don't understand. And I think there's a lot of good answers. But in, at the end of the day, I mean, I can study apologetics all I want, and I think there are some great apologetics for that, that accused, genocidal, megalomaniac God of the Old Testament. And I think it's important for us to study that. But at the end of the day, my faith and my trust in God does not depend on my ability to justify His actions. It comes to my ability to say, I trust God. I trust that in the end, I will fully understand. I can't fully understand why He did what He did back then. I can't fully understand why he's doing what he's doing right now, and I can't fully understand why he's going to do what he's going to do in the future, but I can say that in the end, I can trust him. And I can trust him because he is always legally and ethically correct. God will always do the ethical thing. And why wouldn't he? He is the creator of ethics. How can I, from this small, finite point of view, look to the Creator, the infinite Creator, and say, nah, you got that one wrong, God. (laughs) Clearly, I just don't have enough information. I have to trust that He is just. Not only is He just, but He's true. True is that which is real. God is the author of reality. There is no, by definition, there can only be one truth. There is no your truth and my truth. We might have different viewpoints of the truth. We might view things differently, but there can only be one reality. There can only be one exact truth. If there are two viewpoints of the truth, maybe both of you got it wrong. Maybe one of you is wrong and one of you is right. But there can't be two truths. There's only one. God, as the author of creation, is the authority on truth. If you want to know real truth, look towards God. If you want to know real truth, look towards His Word that He has communicated His truth through. So just and true are His ways. This is God's character. This is who God is. He's not influenced by culture. He's not influenced by some academic philosophy. God is always true. God is always just. 
You and I, we have influences. Even as we read Scripture, there are different ways to read that influence us. Our duty, our goal, is as we read, we should be letting the Word influence us more and more, and culture and other, these other outside influences influence us less and less. Because God's, God's character is just and true. We seem to twist God's truth. O King of the nations. And this is just emphasizing that He is sovereign. He is Lord of all. There is not a single person, there is not a single person group that is left out of His sovereignty. Who will not fear, O Lord, not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? And the, the way this question is phrased, it's to give us a, an answer that everyone will fear and glorify His name at the end. There are some that will choose to glorify Him and fear Him now and repent there will be some that will still live in rebellion, but their lives in the end will glorify Him. Even if it's not the way that they wished. But God's justice will be glorified through His wrath. Some will glorify God by experiencing His wrath. So all will come to fear Him. All will come to glorify Him even if it is through His wrath. And then he gives us three, they give us three reasons why. For you alone are holy. Holy simply means to be uh, morally pure or other than. And it's in contrast, when we say other than, it's in contrast to humanity. And it's one of these ways that like, in ancient Hebrew, they didn't even quite understand how to describe God because how do you describe the infinite? You can't exactly describe it. And so they would contrast God with humans Humanity, and they'd say, you're so great, O Lord, you are other than. All of the good moral characteristics that we have, those are only a slight display of your glory. You are so glorious, you're so amazing, that you are other than human. You are above us, you are beyond us, you are beyond our comprehension. So God alone is other than. He is morally pure, so much so that we can't even quite comprehend it. That's the idea of Him being holy. So that's the first reason why all will come to fear Him and glorify Him. The second one is all nations will come and worship you. In the end, all nations, everyone from everywhere, will end up submitting to God's authority. And then the third reason, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So in the end of it all, God's righteousness, His moral and ethic and legally correct works will be revealed. And once again, that speaks to, at the end, we're just going to have to say, I trust God. I don't know why He does everything that He does. But I will trust His actions more than my ability to understand His actions. So that's the hymn they sing. After this, I looked and the sanctuary or the tent of witness. This is a reference to the uh, temple. In the Old Testament, the witness is the Ten Commandments, which were stored in the temple. So the, uh, uh, the reference, it's a reference of God's righteousness. And we see that the wrath that will come is from the witness of His righteousness. So that's the reference of the sanctuary or the tent of witness. The witness are the Ten Commandments. 
and they are witnessing his righteousness, the wrath is going to come from this witness, which condemns us all. Not a single one of us have lived perfectly, not a single one of us have lived perfectly holy lives. So that wrath, those Ten Commandments, are witnesses against every single one of us. If we were in a courtroom, we'd all be condemned guilty. If we were in a courtroom, not a single one of us, would the jury say, not guilty. Every single one of us would be guilty. So the the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure pure bright linen with golden sausage around their chests. The description of these angels reveals that the angels have a priestly function, and they they will uh, go out with the authority of God. So they are going to do their work on behalf of God. They are leaving with the authority of God to do what God has called them to. And one of the four living creatures, the four living creatures brings us all the way back to chapter 4, if you remember the description of the throne room. If you don't remember that, I encourage you, today, go back to chapters 4 and 5 and read through them. You'll make some huge connections. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So, uh, chapter, or sorry, verse 8, I think, reveals two things. One is, since no one can enter into the sanctuary, the intercession that is between man and God is over at this moment. There is no one interceding on man's behalf. If you have not already been interceded for by Christ, you no longer have that ability. So God being holy and just, us in our rebellion, if you, can, if you think of a courtroom setting, it's like Jesus Christ has covered us with his righteousness. And when you are covered with righteousness, God says, not guilty. But if you aren't covered with that righteousness, God says, guilty. So, all those who have already been covered, have already been interceded for by Christ, but those who have not put their faith and trust in Christ, the ability to have Christ intercede for you is over. So that's the first part of that no one is allowed into the sanctuary. The second part is, that God's wrath is so great that nothing could survive it. I often hear people talk about how God can't be around sin. And and the argument often goes like this, God is so holy, he can't be around sin. I think it's actually the opposite that is true. It is that God is so holy and his wrath is so great that when when his wrath comes out fully, no sin can be around it. And there's a, there's a slight change there. It, we're kind of getting at the same thing, that sin and God's holiness can't coexist. The difference is, when we say sin can't be around, or God can't be around sin, we kind of make him as this like weak God, don't we? Like, oh God, he's just so flimsy and just so weak that, you know, if, if sin were ever to like come near him, he would just like poof out of existence. Like, he just can't be around it. So he has to get rid of it somehow. 
You see how that kind of paints God as flimsy and weak? Uh, that's, it's the exact opposite that's true. God is so powerful and so holy that if sin were ever try to enter into him or enter next to him during this wrath where he's going to come and judge that sin, it would cease to exist. The thing that was bringing that sin to him would cease to exist. That's what's going on here. That's why nothing is allowed into the temple at this period because God's wrath is so full of power, so full of might. So nothing is allowed to enter. Then I heard a loud voice. So now the the wrath is going to be unleashed on earth. Then I heard a loud voice. This is God's voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the angels go out with the authority of God. He's given them the command. He's going to go out. They're going to go out with the authority of God to unleash this wrath on earth. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So, if you remember, we'll go all the way back. I know I already gave a reminder, but we'll go all the way back to the seals. The seals showed us how wicked humans were. The trumpets pushed man to repent, showed us how great God is and showed us how horrible it will be to be eternally separated from God. These bowls will be the final judgment. There is no longer an opportunity to repent. But we should also note that it's only occurring to the people who bore the mark of the beast. If you remember last week during the interlude, those who took the mark of the beast were those who pledged allegiance to the beast. They pledged allegiance and their loyalties to Satan. (coughs) That's an important thing to remember because they had the opportunity. They saw their own wickedness. They saw the glory of God. They even got to experience what it would be like to spend eternity with Satan. And in the end, what do they do? They say, well, I'd rather pledge my allegiance and my loyalties to this Satan character than to submit my life to God. So they still don't repent. And so, he will pour it out on only those who bore the mark of the beast. Those who refuse to take the mark will be spared. But if you remember, in the end, you'll only have two choices. You'll either take the mark of the beast and live on earth, or you will take the mark of God. You will be sealed by God and you will be killed. You will be martyred during the tribulation period. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, so now we're going to get to another place of worship of God. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, For you brought these judgments. So this first part is an affirmation of God's righteousness. It's an affirmation that what he is doing is the right thing to do. Some people might question it. Some people might see how horrific this picture is, and they begin to question, is God really morally correct? And this angel is singing, yes, don't question it. God is doing the right thing. So he breaks it down. Once again, just, he uses the word just, and he uses the word holy. God is so morally above us, and he always does the, more, the legal and ethical correct thing to do. And then he says, who is and who was. And if you remember all the way back, it was always who is, who was, 
who is to come. And we see, once again, that this is no, he leaves out the is to come because the come has come. They have entered that time period. So now it's just who was and who is. For you brought these judgments. These judgments are a pronouncement of guilt and a carrying out of the sentence. They didn't, it wasn't like they didn't have a warning. They had a warning. And we've talked so much through this second vision that almost all of it, almost every Sunday we talk about how it was like they had to click the I agree, the user agreement. They read the fine print. They knew what was coming. They knew what the judgments were going to be. And they knew that they deserved it. And yet they refused the way out that God had given them. For they have shed the blood. So this next part is the justice of the punishment. Why does God punish them? How is this a justful punishment? Now we get the description. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets. So all those who are believers are saints. Have you ever considered yourself a saint? If you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are called a saint. Not because of any works that you do, but because of what Christ has done and how he has covered you. So, they are saints, and the people that are getting this wrath, they have shed the blood. They were bloodthirsty. They wanted to kill the saints. And you had given them blood to drink. Because they were bloodthirsty, because they were looking to kill, God gave them what they wanted. And it's their own blood. And then he finishes it with this. It is what they deserve because they have lived in rebellion, because they knew the fine print, because they clicked on the user agreement, I agree, because they understood fully what they were getting into, and yet still rejected God. This is what they deserve. And I heard the, I heard the altar saying, now I think a better way to, to translate this would, I heard a voice from the altar saying it wasn't the actual altar itself, but it was from a voice. And what it shows is that angel, the rest of the angels are in agreement. So this one angel declares that God is righteous. He shows why these people deserve it. And then we get agreement from a whole multitude of angels. Yes, the Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And what they're doing is just confirming that what the angel said, that God is morally correct and that these judgments are justified, he's saying correct. This is true. It's what they deserve. And in all honesty, it's what you and I deserve as well. But because God is so great in His mercy, He has given us an out. The fourth angel poured out His bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Now this is a direct attack on the beast. This is the first time we see the direct attack on the beast. And not only the king, not only the beast experiences this darkness, but the kingdom of the beast. All those who have taken his mark, all those who have rejected the kingdom of God, God's sovereign rule, and have declared their allegiance to the beast will be covered in darkness. And people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. That's a reference all the way back to the first bowl. And you know, have you ever had a cut that you had all day and you never really paid attention to it? 
And then at night you laid down and the lights were off and you tried to go to sleep. And that cut just kept you awake. That's because it's like a sensory deprivation, right? When that light is out, you're no longer able to numb your mind to other things or to the, to the pain and the cut. Well, that's what's happening here. The pain of their sores has intensified because they can no longer numb their mind or uh, let their minds get caught up in something else. So they feel the pain all the more. They did not repent of their deeds. So we see in the fourth bowl and the fifth bowl, the result, right? What's the result? They curse God. In both, the result is they curse God. They know their wickedness. They know this is what they deserve. They know the judgments are true and just, and yet, what do they do? They curse God. Have you ever been disciplined? And instead of accepting responsibility, you cursed the person that disciplined you? Have you ever been caught speeding? And instead of owning your speeding ticket and saying, yep, I got what I deserved. I got what was coming. I, I was speeding. I got caught. Have you ever instead been mad that the cop was there? That's what they're doing. Oh man, I'm so angry at that cop for catching me speeding. That's not a repentant attitude. That's not like saying, nope, I made a mistake. Saying it's the cop's fault. No, it's not the cop's fault. It's your fault for speeding. That's what they're doing here. They're saying it's God's fault. How dare he create the world and give it moral principle? How dare he care about the world enough that he would bring wrath because we've been bringing destruction to the world? How dare he? That's what they're doing here. Not only do they curse him, but they do not repent. They do not give him glory. They do not give him the status that he so rightly deserves. And they do not repent of their deeds. Meaning they continue to do the works. It's like after you get the speeding ticket, you curse the cop, and then you floor the gas. I think we've all seen the videos of the guy that like gets the speeding ticket, and then he rips the speeding ticket up and throws it, and the cop's like, sweet, now you get a littering ticket as well. So what's going on here, right? Not only are they not going to repent and say, yeah, I own that, I did it. But they're going to outright continue in rebellion. And we see, once again, a theme that we've saw, seen over and over again in Revelation, that disbelief is not a result of confusion. These people are not confused. It's not that they don't understand who God is and their own wickedness. Disbelief is a result of rebellion. And that's what's going on here. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So this is one that's not actually a plague on the people. Uh, so there's a little bit of debate on whether this is a literal or figurative. I think it's figurative. The river Euphrates was the far border of the Roman Empire. So if it dried up, then the Parthians and all these kings from the east could come and declare war. So this is a visual showing us that all of the God is enabling or equipping all of the world to finally come together in a unified, cooperative movement to declare war against God. That's what's going on. He's, God is allowing this to happen. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad for the kings of the whole world 
to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. So the, these, these prophets are coming out, and this is the propaganda machine of Satan. There will be so many lies. There will be so much deception. The only way to decipher the truth will be to stick in God's Word. Those who do not know God's Word will be easily deceived. You don't think it's true, and so often it's so easy to be like, no way, people are really that dumb? But I think the last two years has revealed something to us. People are easily deceived. There are propaganda machines, and man, if you don't buy into it, the peer pressure to buy into it is so heavy that it's easy to fall in line. And that's what's going to be happening here. Then Jesus gives us a parenthetical statement. Behold, I am coming like a thief. This doesn't mean that thieves typically come to steal. This doesn't mean that he's coming to, to cause harm. It just simply means that you don't know when he's going to come. Thieves don't call up and say, hey, are you going to be home around 2 a.m. on Friday the 17th? Because I'm planning on coming by. Thieves don't do that. They wait till you're not prepared. They watch your house. They watch whether or not your cars are there. And when they see that you're not prepared, that's when they strike. That's what's going on. He's saying, you don't know when I'm going to come. It's not that he's coming to do harm, but that he, is com- but that he comes and you don't know when. Therefore, remain prepared. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on. That is whole reference to saying, stay prepared. Stay prepared. That he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Uh, this is a reference to a city actually called Megiddo. Megiddo is uh, a city that is on the interna- was on the international highway. So the mo- one of the most important cities in the world was Megiddo. Uh, during those times, there was a huge trade route from Egypt all the way up to Mesopotamia. And they had to go through Megiddo. Megiddo was the last city right before the pass at Mount Carmel. There were several wars that were fought, world-changing wars that were fought at Megiddo. Zechariah 12.11 references it as a place of mourning as they face God's judgment. So I think that's really what Megiddo represents, is a place of mourning as these people face God's judgment. So they're going to gather around to declare war on God, but they will be unsuccessful, so there will be mourning because of God's judgment. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple. Once again, this is God's voice with authority from the throne saying, it is done. This last bowl is it. His wrath is complete. Justice has been served. And then we see the power and might that comes with it. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake, the great city was split into three parts. Now this is a local earthquake that I think affects all of the world. And it affects all the world because we see that every island fled, meaning all islands were wiped out. And every mountains, or sorry, and no mountains were to be found. So this earthquake is so great that it impacts the whole world, that it flattens mountains and makes islands dissolve. What an incredible earthquake. What an incredible judgment. And great hailstones 
about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. The world record for hailstones, I think, is 2.24 pounds. Could you imagine how big that thing is? 100 pounds. But what is the result? They curse God. That's the continued result. This chat or these two chapters start off the narrative. The, the second vision finishes with a celebration of God's wrath. There are saints celebrating God's wrath and his justice. And some people might think that's jacked up. I mean, people are going to die. People are going to be eternally separated from God and spend eternity in hell. That's jacked up that there's a celebration. But there's a celebration not because of that, but because of God's justice. Every single part of God's character should be celebrated, including His justice. And inside us, we all have a deep yearning for true justice. It's one of the reasons why we all jump on the Ukraine bandwagon, right? We see an unprovoked war. We see Russia coming into Ukraine. And we see an unjust war. And so we cheer on Ukraine because we want to see justice prevail. That's why when somebody goes flying past us on the highway and we know they're speeding and then they get caught, we're like, yes. We want to see justice prevail. But we have a hard time with justice because we are broken, fallen people. And as a result, we have broken, fallen justice systems. And as good of a justice system as we can get, will still not be perfect justice. There will not be perfect justice until God comes. And when God comes, He will bring perfect justice. And that is something to celebrate. Unless you're on the receiving end. His wrath is terrible. His wrath is mighty. And every single one of us deserve it. The only thing God owes us is His justice and His wrath. But because He's also full of mercy, He has provided a way out. Every single one of us, no matter how good you are, has at some point messed up. At some point, we've shaken our fist at God and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. And as a result, we all deserve that wrath. But God came in the flesh and He took on that wrath. He took on the punishment for your sin, for your rebellion so that you wouldn't have to experience it. And all you have to do is put your faith and trust in Christ and His work on the cross. The wrath is coming. It is real. It is terrible. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ? Have you declared to God, I'm a sinner. I've rebelled against you. I know I deserve death. But Lord, I trust in your mercy, in your grace, and in your work on the cross. If you haven't, I implore you, today's the day, this moment, right now, put your faith and trust in Christ. Dear Lord, we recognize that our justice is flawed. 
we'll never find perfect justice until you come. And when you come, perfect justice will be dealt. Your wrath will be perfect. It will be holy. It will be just. It will be righteous. And it is what we deserve. But because you are full of mercy and full of grace, you have provided a way out. And Lord, we pray for those who haven't put their faith and trust in you, that they would come to know you, that they would put their faith and trust in you, that we, at the end of it all, could sing a celebration of your perfect justice. Because we are forgiven. In your name we pray. Amen.